Review of the Year 2022. Hello, I'm Kate Chabot with our final sit rep of the year. As we look back on the last 12 months, I'm going to be testing some of the finest defence minds to see what they remember from a very busy 2022. The plan that we're seeing could be the biggest war in Europe since 1945. Look, saying this is where the civilians are, where they're trying to get out of safety and bombing it, so it's going out of order. I even don't know what the day of today is. I only know that it's a seven day of war. From now, the army will have a singular focus to mobilise and thereby prevent war in Europe. I'm honoured to take my place as Prime Minister in this House. We are all devastated by the news that we have just heard from Balmoral. I shall strive to follow the inspiring example I have been set. Well, I've got the questions, but who is supplying the answers? James Wharton spent 10 years serving in the Household Cavalry and joined the BFBS news team three years ago. Hi, James. I'm guessing it's a slightly quieter life now. Oh, yeah, it definitely is, Kate. But um, I don't know, there's some mornings in the newsroom when I find myself (laughs) running around and it feels very similar to running around looking for my sword, just as I'm supposed to be getting on a horse or something. (laughs) Not too dissimilar. Well, welcome to SITREP. Uh, Richard White is also a member of the BFBS news team. Uh, Richard, what's your official job title? I work in the archive at BFBS, so we have thousands of tapes uh, dating back years, and I, one of my jobs is to ingest them, but I also advise the news team. Indeed. Uh, he is better known as our go-to geek for military detail. Sorry about that, Richard. Thanks to many years of service in the Royal Marines, that is. Leaving as a warrant officer, is it indelicate to ask how many years you spent in the Royal Marines, Richard? Uh, yeah, it is. That's totally classified. But I had a full <laughs> career, I can tell you that. And Sean Grezchek, who you may have heard both reporting and presenting on SITREP this year. She's become something of an expert on all things Air Force after two years based at RAF Aquateria in Cyprus. How are you finding life back in the UK, Sean? A lot colder, especially this month. <laughs> but no, it's, yeah. it's great to be back. But I do miss all those mezes. And may I add, uh, for those that can't actually see Sean like I can, she's got a rather fetching, festive turkey hat on her head. Finally, of course, my con- constant companion on SITREP, Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Mike, um, anything you want to reveal that we don't already know about you? Oh, no, I think you know quite a lot about me. Is it right to say that you started your career as a trained actor? I did, I did a lot of acting, yeah. I was always an, uh, an amateur. I never got my equity card, although I was working towards it. But I was I got drawn into the analysis business. So I never I never got my equity card, but I used to spear carry for professional companies whilst I was doing sort of John Proctor in the Crucible or the gingerbread man um, <laughs> in the Christmas shows or the dame in the Christmas shows. Yeah, I had a very rewarding, very busy acting career in my 20s and early 30s. And it's to our benefit that you are a defence analyst for us. Thank you. Welcome to you all. Right, let's get started with the quiz. You all know how quizzes work. There are no points for guessing our first subject. But let's remind ourselves how it unfolded in the first few weeks of 2022. I don't think we're going to see a mass war. We're not going to see some attempt to take you. The signs are they're at least planning. We are on the edge of a precipice. An invasion remains distinctly possible. I consider it necessary to take a long overdue decision. Well, it looks as if Mr. Putin has gone for broke. When troops of one country entry the territory of another country without its consent, they are not impartial peacekeepers. They are not peacekeepers at all. 
Even when Russia invaded Ukraine, none of us really expected the war still to be raging even now. We're approaching the 10-month anniversary of the invasion. When will that 10-month anniversary be? I can see the cogs. Uh, James Wharton, you're the first to put your hands up. I think it's the 23rd of December. Yeah. Close, but not quite right. Sean, you got your hand up? 24th. 24th, absolutely right. Yes, because Russia launched its special military operation, as it called it, as most of the rest of the world calls it an invasion, in the early hours of the 24th of February, making that date the 10-month anniversary, the 24th of December, Christmas Eve. Uh, Question number two. How long did Russia think it would take before it was effectively in control of Ukraine? Sean, you got your hand up already. 30 days. Nope, not quite right. Richard White. Three weeks. Nope. Michael Clark. Yeah, three to four days, followed by a sort of suppression process that would have been over by the 8th of March. Mm, not quite. That's, the, that's not the answer I have here, anyone? So the answer is 10 days. President Putin says it's still going to plan, but documents revealed by defence think tank Rusi this month show Moscow's plan expected the invasion to be complete within 10 days and annexation completed by August. On to question number three. Who said just the day before the invasion that President Putin had gone full tonto? Mike's laughing. Sean's got a hand at God, Sean. Ben Wallace? The Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace. Um, can anyone tell me how this came about? It okay. was in a press conference, wasn't it? Well, it was, it was an unguarded comment made yeah. to soldiers at Horse Guards, although yeah. he was sat next to the Home Secretary at the time and the TV camera was right in front yeah. of him. Uh, let's do some numbers to give you an idea of the scale of the conflict. On to question four now. How many artillery rounds does NATO estimate Ukraine is using every day? Yeah, I mean, something like uh, ten to 15,000 is my understanding. Actually, it's, it's less than that. Okay. Go on, Richard. 5,000. Nearly. I'll bid 7,500. Take a half thousand off. It's 7,000, the answer. And that adds up to about 2 million since the start of the war. Mm. How many artillery rounds has the UK supplied to Ukraine? Uh, I'm going to go for around 100,000. You know what? That's about right. It's almost 100,000, according to the latest MOD figures. Well done. Uh, how many anti-tank missiles? Enlaws and then uh, Javelin was about 4,000 in the first instance, I think. And then there were more after that. So I'd yeah. go for something like 7,000 to 8,000. Can you go a little bit higher? Oh, is it 10? Yes, Mm. (laughs) Mike Clark, a point Mm. to you. Those are the latest MOD figures. Uh, The UK was the first European country to send lethal weapons to Ukraine starting before the invasion. The second largest donor, that's £2.3 billion, still dwarfed by the US, which is around 10 times as much. Um, Richard White, you've been tracking all the different weapons systems throughout the conflict. What's been the most important thing that we've supplied, do you think? I think um, in the initial stages, the, the weapons that were really key was the Enlaws and Javelin missiles. And then when the Russians or convoy that we saw north of Kiev in the first days of the invasion, it was just stopped in its tracks by that equipment. And we know the Ukrainians respect that equipment and they've used it very, very effectively. But certainly Enlaw, which is a light kind of throwaway rocket and Javelin, they're both firing forget, but Javelin has an infrared heat seeking locks onto, you know, being devastatingly effective. We've yeah. sent other equipment as well, such as high velocity missiles, 
and Martlet, which is the new air defense missile. So both of those are, you know, contributed. We've seen them working on the Stormer vehicles, which the Royal Artillery use. Uh, so all of those systems have been quite effective. And you know, Kate, the Russian tactics were so poor in the way they were going forward. There's lots of video clips of people with in-laws firing on a Russian tank or a armored fighting vehicle, literally from about 30 meters away, you know, not half a mile, just round the corner. The, the fact is the Russians let them get that close because they didn't conduct their armored warfare in any of the conventionally sensible ways. The Russian tactics at first, when they first came in, we saw Ukrainians using the Bayraktar drones that they'd bought from Turkey. And those drones had a massive effect at the start of the war as well, because simply the Russians just came down one road in one huge convoy of 40 kilometers. And the Ukrainians were just able to use their drones and pick off the air defense vehicles, first of all, which didn't seem to be doing their job. And then they focused on the Russian command vehicles and they were just able to stop the convoy in its track. And then that combined with the missiles that were being used against the tanks and the Russians just became stationary after about three days and they didn't move after that. And Richard, as time's gone on, things have by nature become a bit more creative and improvised. Have any of the weapon systems you've seen been a particular surprise? The Ukrainians have been uh, really creative in the way that they've used some of their older systems. I mean, recently, to attack air bases deep in Russia, they've actually been using old 1970s Tu-22 uh, reconnaissance drones, which were just designed to fly over the battlefield at high mm. speed, taking photographs. But they don't really, they only have a very, very simple guidance. But the Ukrainians just been firing them on the sort of one-way trips into Russia. Richard White, I would love to give you points for all of that. But actually, sadly, none of that very rich information was, was part of the quiz at all. But well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> Time Thank for you. the missing words round, because it's not all been about Ukraine this year, however it might have felt. So tell me, for each of these clips we're now going to play, which country is the missing word? First up, the head of MI6, Richard Moore, speaking in July. We now devote more effort to than any other single subject. So, for example, it has just moved past uh, counterterrorism in terms of our mission. James Wharton, you had your hand up before that even finished. That was uh, C. Richard Moore at a fireside chat. And what was the country? China. Absolutely right, 100%. Next one. It's kind of related. We didn't go there to talk about China. We went there to praise. We went there to show our friendship, to say China cannot isolate. Richard White, you had your hand up first. Go I on. won. Absolutely. Can you tell us who that was who was speaking? Sean? Nancy Pelosi. Absolutely. Speaker of US House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi, who visited Taiwan in August. It prompted major Chinese military exercises encircling Taiwan. Uh, Mike uh, Clark, what's 2022 been like for China versus the rest of the world? Oh, very difficult because the non-COVID policy has been very damaging to the Chinese economy. Uh, Xi Jinping got his 20th Party Congress in which he is now, as it were, leader for a very long period, probably for life if he wants it. But there is a lot of opposition building up on the streets in China and the Ukrainian war is doing China no good at all. And the Chinese are in a difficult position because, you know, Putin might become his Kim Jong-un. He might become his North Korea, another North Korea. So it's been a difficult year for China, 2022. But the, the Chinese are very pragmatic. So I suspect that they will find a way to loosen up 
the COVID restrictions, which they are doing, but then COVID will actually run riot because their Sinovac vaccine isn't very effective. So there will be a lot more COVID transmission in China as they loosen up. Thanks, Mike. Let's move on to our next missing word. Boris Johnson, remember him? Back in April. Our new and expanded defence and security partnership will enable to strengthen its own domestic defence industry as well as protecting vital shared interests. Mike Clark, you were the first with your hand up. Which country oh, this was has it? Got be, this has got to be uh, Boris Johnson talking about the AUKUS deal. Isn't it the uh, the American... It was actually... Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's a plausible answer, but actually he was talking about oh. India. Oh, OK. okay. Yeah, he called it a decades-long commitment, although most of the questions he got were about Partygate. I should have let you uh, come in, Richard. What were you going to say? Just out Australia. of interest. Australia. Uh, OK, OK. Our next story and question come from just last month, the end of a long British military presence. I can see the logic behind the UK's withdrawal because of conditions in... But it wouldn't be fair to say that no longer poses a problem. Three of you had your hands up, but Sean got there first. Sean. Is it Mali in the withdrawal of our troops from there? Absolutely right. That was UK and in contribution to UN peacekeeping operations a year early. That's because Mali's government has turned to Russia and the Wagner Group. Uh, the French ended their decade-long Operation Barkane earlier in the year. Let's come back to Europe. Uh, where did the NATO Secretary General say the alliance was ready to intervene, if needed, in August? I will take any measures that is necessary to ensure a safe and secure environment and freedom of movement for all the people of... James, you, you had your hand mm. up, but then you shook your head. You're having a bit of a doubt there, a bit of a wobble. Uh, I hope you didn't see me, Kate. <laughs> I was going to say Poland, but I now uh, regret that. OK, any, any takers? Yeah, it, it is wrong. <laughs> it might have been uh, Estonia. No. Sorry, no. Finland? Nope. nope. All right, I'll, I'll give you a clue. The, the country begins with a K. Kosovo. Yes, Richard, a point to oh, you. This good. is all because... Well, do we give him a point? I don't know. Uh, the, yeah. the person who's counting, James... Yeah, we'll give you a point for that. Very this good. is all because of a dispute about, about rules on number plates. It's repeatedly threatened some kind of conflict with Serbia. Uh, Mike, can you just explain us what the, what the dispute was about number plates? Yeah, I mean, it's a dispute about um, identity... And the number plates thing is, a, is, just, is a symbol. But the fact is, Serbia is in a position now to do two things. One is to try to create a crisis in Kosovo if it can get help from Russia, which it thinks it can. And secondly, Bosnia is under real threat of Serbia trying to carve out another Republic of Spraska, as we had in the 1990s, where it tries to carve out of Bosnia a Serbian ethnic area in the sort of northeast of the country. And mm. um, after 30 years... It looks as if, you know, the danger is that we're back to square one. And although Russia is in terrible, terrible straits over Ukraine, the mm. fact that the Russians are now looking to, as it were, meddle anywhere they can just to take a bit of the pressure off gives the Serbians a, a, a sense of this might be the moment. Let's move on to the next missing country. Actually, I should say the next missing countries because there are two different missing countries here. Certainly when they train with their nuclear forces, they are moving them around quite a bit. So I think that this is a signal sent during this week when and have put in their applications for NATO membership. Oh, Sean, you got there first. What's the answer? It's Finland, Finland and Sweden. Absolutely right. Mike, could you have imagined this time 12 months ago that Finland and Sweden would be on the verge of NATO membership? No, absolutely not. I mean, uh, Sweden... <laughs> 
has been neutral since 1812, and Finland has been neutral since 1945. And this is, in terms of military importance, this is the most significant enlargement of NATO since German rearmament in 1955. And Putin claims, oh, it doesn't matter, I really don't care. That's not true. I mean, I think he's chewing the carpet over this because this gives Russia, any other, any Russian leader for the next hundred years, a much bigger security problem to worry about if they worry mm. about territory. And it's, it's astonishing that Finland and Sweden should want to join NATO. You know, there was a joke at the time of it, there was a joke going around in Russia, uh, which was that Putin was having a meeting with his advisors and they were discussing the possibility of this turning into a nuclear war. Mm. And he said, oh, well, that doesn't matter because all Russians go to heaven. But heaven overheard and applied to join NATO. <laughs> Mike, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for putting that visual image in my head of uh, President Putin chewing the carpet. That will stay with me for some time. Citra Review of the Year 2022. Uh, right, time for a round of questions from home. Let's focus in on British forces in 2022. The new head of the army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, started the job by announcing a new singular focus to improve readiness to meet today's threat and prevent war in Europe. It even got an operation name. What was the name of that operation? Mobilise. Absolutely. It was announced at the end of June. He said it would mean ruthless prioritisation, picking up the pace of combined arms training and majoring on urban combat, all very much about Russia. Let's do some more numbers now. Um, the Royal Navy has been leading NATO's response force. It's just handed that role over to Turkey. In hours, how much time have Royal Navy warships spent on NATO operations this year? James has got his head in his hands almost there. Richard White. I was going to say 10,000, but it can't be that 10,000. Could you just be a little bit more confident there, Richard? 10,000. Absolutely right. <laughs> that includes exercises such as Dynamic Mongoose and operations such as Sea Guardian in the Mediterranean. HMS Prince of Wales did serve as NATO's command ship for some of the year, but where is she now and why? Michael Clark, you oh, have uh, She's in, uh, uh, I guess it uh, must be Portsmouth. Um, because she's there for repairs. Is it not Portsmouth? Has she gone to Rosyth or something like that? Yes, Rosyth, she, you got Rosyth, it there. Yeah. You got it there. <laughs> it's for, for repairs. I mean, it's the classic thing that the propulsion system was vibrating, and this happens a lot on uh, modern ships. It, it sets up a sort of a, a death rattle in the engine room, and, uh, yeah, it, it happens. But I'll get it sorted out. It's, it's slightly embarrassing, but, you know, these things pass. Uh, the RAF has been policing skies above even more of Eastern Europe than usual because of the invasion of Ukraine. But which RAF unit has been protecting the World Cup for the last few weeks? Oh, I know this one. Go on, uh, Mike. I, I think, I, is it uh, 12 Squadron? Absolutely which is the, right. Uh, the British Qatari Joint Typhoon Squadron. Absolutely um, right. And as it was reported in Private Eye, with some annoyance uh, amongst other mm -hmm. RAF crew, um, 12 Squadron in their base have heated toilet seats. The, <laughs> they are the only squadron to enjoy this benefit, apparently. Thank it's you all for that. in private eye. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Sean, um, can we just talk about the air policing job in Europe? Because that got expanded rapidly after the invasion of Ukraine, didn't it? Uh, extra missions flying from Cyprus. Absolutely. And that was during the time that I was based there. And I remember them arriving, you know, in the dead of night, hearing the unmistakable sound of the typhoons and sort of thinking to myself, 
in between filming, you know, I wonder what is going on in the heads of those pilots. You know, it was very, very short turnaround. Four typhoons arrived and then straight out on those sorties in the skies uh, over Romania. And then, of course, there were pilots from RAF Coningsby uh, flying over Poland. And of course, it's not just the fighter jets. There's everything to support them, including the Voyager refueling tankers. You went on one of those missions. What was it like? I've been on one of those jobs before during an exercise um, and not only is it very impressive to watch when the the typhoons are refueled because the voyagers are essentially flying petrol stations and you, you know the typhoons can't do these missions if the voyagers are not there alongside them with them but it felt different knowing that we were 30 miles away from the border with Ukraine watching the typhoons fly off because obviously we had to to stay put but yeah the mood certainly amongst the crew and, and that was very strange as well there were three uh, and me on mm. what felt like a you know a, a regular empty passenger plane it's, it's a very strange feeling but certainly the conversations that we had amongst ourselves none of us knew you know will we still be here in, in several months time it was just a different atmosphere uh, which of course you would expect because when you're on exercise it's uh, you know very, very different conditions isn't it Sean thanks very much I think at this point uh, we should bring you uh, the scores how everyone's doing so far and in the lead with five points is Sean coming second is Mike on four points then we have Richard on three and James on two. But there's still time. James, it's all right. Don't put your head in your hands. You'll be okay. We have time. Uh, Some quickfire questions on the UK's political merry-go-round in 2022 now. First of all, how many days was Liz Truss Prime Minister and therefore in... Oh, I think it was Sean first there. And I was going to say, and therefore in charge of the UK's forces. Sean, how many days? 43. Nope, sorry. No, 44. Nope. 40. Nope. <gasps> 53. Now, you are the closest, James. We're talking about days on the calendar, the actual days on the calendar, 50 days, 40 day, 49 days total because she only did a half day on her first and her last days. Question number two. Who is now the longest continuously serving cabinet minister? It's a bit of a trick one, this one. James, go. I, I want to I say it's Ben Wallace. You are right, but can anyone expand on that? Because he's actually tied with Arthur Jack, Secretary of State for Scotland. They've both been in post since the 24th of July 2019. Mm -hmm. They were appointed when Boris Johnson first became Prime Minister. So three years and four and a bit months each. Currently, how many ministers at Cabinet meetings have military experience? Hmm. Three. Uh, I think you can go higher than that. Let, name the three you've got, anyway. <laughs> James T.P.? He's, he's not, he's not a cabinet list. minister, is he? He's okay. not on the list, no. Ben Wallace? Yep. Johnny Mercer? Yep, that's two. Yep. Um, okay, oh, anyone, uh, can anyone it. hazard a guess at how many? Because it's more than Richard said. Penny Mordaunt? meetings. Does that count, Penny Mordaunt? Yeah, Penny count? Mordaunt, she counts. Yeah, Penny Mordaunt, leader of the Commons. She was a mm. Royal Navy reservist from 2010 to 2019. Yep. Does anyone know why the health secretary may be on there? Steve Barclay, health secretary, Gap Year Commission, the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers. Oh. <laughs> James Cleverly, foreign secretary, Royal Artillery Reserve since 1991. Oh. OK, the, so the, the final answer is there are nine. Tom Tugendhat, of course. Andrew Mitchell, development and Africa minister. He had a short service commission in the Royal Tank Regiment. David T.C. Davis, Welsh Secretary, one year with the Royal Artillery. And 
the chief whip, Simon Hart, five years reservist with Royal Gloucestershire Hussars. Mm. Ah, there you go. Now, the politics uh, and much of national life were put on hold in September as the armed forces faced their most significant duty outside war fighting. My lords, it is my sad duty to inform you that Her Most Gracious Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, has passed away. Ma'am, it was an honour to serve you and the country. God bless you, your servant. Royal salute! Present and... With the eyes of the world on them, 142 Royal Navy sailors pulled the gun carriage carrying the Queen's coffin to Westminster Abbey. Just the privilege and also the honour to be able to take her on her final journey. God save the King! As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. King Charles III, now Commander-in-Chief of the UK's Armed Forces. Sharpen up your thinking on the King's military connections. I'll have some questions for you on that in a moment. But let's just reflect on the contribution of the Armed Forces in that national mourning for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. 5,949 servicemen and women were deployed on ceremonial duties from Her Majesty's death until her funeral. They included Grenadier Guards who bore the Queen's coffin into Westminster Abbey. Um, James Wharton, you were involved in many royal ceremonial duties as a soldier in the Blues and Royals. What was it like for you to watch this? Well, I mean, I, I can't think of any other year in living memory where military ceremonial events and organisation have been so significant. Um, watching with everybody else, I wouldn't say I felt like I was missing out on a, on a big event. I think it's too long since I left, but I certainly recognise that the personnel from across the three armed forces involved would be experiencing this most incredible occasion, solemn occasion, that will always stick with them for the rest of their lives. And I often imagine, you know, imaginary grandchildren. The biggest event that I ever took part in when I was in the armed forces was um, the wedding of Prince William to the now Princess of Wales. And I still think that, you know, when I'm in my 60s and 70s, I'll be talking to family members I don't have about, you know, how, how proud I am of that. And, and I think it will be the same for those who were involved in this. Mm. And do you have any personal memories yourself of Her Majesty the Queen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first um, occasion I was in uniform and in the presence of the Queen, I was 17 uh, and I was stood on the staircase of the Palace of Westminster for the state opening of Parliament. And um, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh walked past me and they were probably less than a metre away from me. And I just remember being utterly overcome with this sort of dizziness at the you know, ridiculousness of being so close to these incredibly important people. Uh, and I, I've I've tried to explain it to people, um, and you know the air around them changed. I'm not, I can't, you know, be more specific and descriptive. How did it than change? That. Well, there was a different aura. There was a different smell. If you can allow me to say that. <laughs> what does the and royal they, family smell like? <laughs> that's really hard to explain. I mean, I wish I could <laughs> bottle it, but it was really different. And and I think that's the most 
pressing memory I have of that of that time. Mm, James, you can make a fortune with that odour de royalty. Um, of course, all members of the forces had sworn loyalty not only to the Queen, but also her heirs and successors. Can anyone tell me who swore the first military oaths of allegiance to King Charles III? Sean, you got your hand up first. Go on. Oh, James, did you cover this? Was it was it in Catterick? Was it was it a, a Gurkha? I don't think uh, that's the answer, but I know what you mean. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Sorry, that's nice, a word. <laughs> nice try, Sean, but no. Anyone? I think it is uh, the Prince of Wales, Prince William. Nah. It was recruits at the Army Training Regiment in Winchester, 130 of them on the 11th of September. That was three days after Charles became king. Charles, of course, had a military career in his 20s. How long was he a serving member of the armed forces? Go on, James. I think it's three years. No, you have to improve on that a little bit higher. Mike, you look like you were going yeah, to say I, something. Yeah, I, I think he was in it for four years. So close. So helicopter close. pilot. Was it four and a half, something like that? Or go on, go on, Richard. Five years. Five is the correct answer. He got his RAF wings in August 1971. He then joined the Royal Navy, including a stint as a helicopter pilot in 845 Naval Air Squadron. He finished active service at the end of 1976 after 10 months commanding coastal mine hunter HMS Bronington. Um, James, did your ceremonial duties ever bring you into close contact with now King Charles? Um, at, at a distance, for sure. I had this incredible honour of serving as Prince Harry's gunner for four weeks in, in, in Canada. And the closest I think I ever got to King Charles was a phone call he received while sat next to me. And he answered the phone and was just like, oh, hey, Dad. And I was like, oh, just talking to Prince Charles. How, 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 how random is that? And of course, the military have a big role ahead next year for the King's coronation. Uh, can anyone tell me what date that is due to happen? June, on, uh, June or something. Eighth. Uh, no, Mike. Sorry, Sean. You, you put. You've got a little trick, Sean. You put your hand up and then you think. Yeah. I've just noticed she's been. I don't know if we should penalise her for that, but she's <laughs> she's definitely keen. Go on, Sean. You got. Have you got the days? It's a. May, it's around the May early May bank holiday. May, uh, go on, Richard. May ninth. No. Is it May fourth? May the fourth no. be with us. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's sick. Yes, you got that in the end, Sean. I'll let our adjudicator decide whether you deserve a point for that. That will be a very big day. And of course, we will be there. And you know what? That brings us to the end of the SITREP quiz slash review of 2022. And a big drum roll. I can now bring you the results. And I can say it really paid off putting your hand up quickly, Sean. And you came first with six points. There was a joint uh, second place with Mike and Richard both on four points. Well done. And uh, coming third, I should say. Don't don't be don't shake your head, James. It's okay. You put, Someone's got to come last. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it's all it's all about the taking part, isn't it, <laughs> James? Apparently. You had three points. <laughs> Thank you so much to all of you for your time, James Wharton, Richard White, Sean Grezchek, and of course Professor Michael Clark. Uh, we'll be on our Christmas break next Thursday, but we'll be back on Thursday the fifth 
5th of January for the first sit rep of 2023, where I have a feeling we'll be doing some crystal ball gazing, trying to work out what the world has in store for us over the next 12 months. Don't forget, all of our programmes this year are online for you to listen wherever you want and whenever you want, including extra editions with some of our most remarkable interviews, such as Lord West remembering the loss of his ship in the Falklands 40 years on, or Toby Guttridge's amazing story of the Special Forces operation in Afghanistan that left him paralysed and how he's rebuilt his life. You can find it all at bfbs.com slash sitrep or wherever you download your podcasts. But for now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you so much for listening. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Sitrep, Review of the Year 2022.